This is an ABC podcast. Hello and welcome again to Extra with me, Geraldine Doog, here on RN. We're going to be talking about cheap travel later in this hour, which is something Australians most definitely indulge in, and we're going to hear a perspective that says it could well be that that era is coming to an end. Also, trade hitting the headlines. It's a boring topic in some ways for a lot of us who've reported for many years, but it's a vital topic, and it's hitting the headlines again for the wrong reasons. We take it for granted. We regard it as just working. Well, it may not be. Well, now a perspective on American politics and culture that's rather different to the special we broadcast a few weeks back, if you recall. Contributors Nick Bryant, Adam Toos and Ruth Ben-Giat then were pretty pessimistic, if you recall, about the decline of American democracy and they couldn't really see a turnaround. Well, by contrast, an analyst by the name of Jane Coaston has been visiting Australia as a guest of the US Study Centre in Sydney to outline why she believes things are, yes, not good, but she believes they could be worse and probably have been worse in previous American experience as recently as the turmoil of the 70s, for instance. Jane Coaston comes from America's America's Midwest, from Ohio, which she thinks might offer her a slightly different perspective. Jane's also African-American, and she's done a lot of political analysis over the years, most notably now as an occasional columnist for the New York Times, but also as the host of a popular podcast called The Argument. She focuses on conservative thinking and localism, and I hope she can give us her assessment too of the upcoming midterm elections. Now, now, I spoke to her in the studio before she left on Friday, so no chance, I'm afraid, to raise that news that landed just this morning about that awful attack on Nancy Pelosi's husband yesterday in their California home. I welcomed her. Thank you so much for having me. Look, one of the reasons for the overt turmoil, you say, which Mm -hmm. certainly preoccupies us in Australia, is that there's a great power shift underway or more sort of an expansion of those making decisions, you suggest, Mm -hmm. which makes the last 20 or 30 years much more fractious than before, so after World War II. Now, outline that thought of yours, please, for us. Well, I think that when people often in America try to hearken back to a time of less polarization, when the two parties, the two major parties, the Democratic Party and the Republican Party, were closer together ideologically, they look back to the mid-1950s. But that was also a time in which a large swath of today's electorate was not able to participate, namely African-American voters. Also, you see that with the shifts in immigration after 1965, there's a host of non-white voters in general that have been added to the electorate, meaning that the electorate is now much bigger, much broader, much more diverse, and yes, much more fractious than it was in the 1950s. I often joke that it's like if you had a room of 10 people and the door was locked, you could always say, you know, we can all come together on these specific issues. Just don't let anyone else in. That is what much of American politics was like between 1928 and 1965. And I think that there are many people for whom That sounds great. You can make a lot of agreements when everyone's very similar. But now where every town, every city is increasingly more diverse, you have cities like Houston and Dallas and Texas that now are becoming increasingly more majority non-white. You have regions in Ohio and Pennsylvania that are having dramatic economic shifts that are also changing what their electorate looks like and what it wants to do. You're seeing cities like Pittsburgh, for example, that were long known as Steel City, which now is pretty much known for the service economy and for kind of knowledge economy, growth of the University of Pittsburgh, for example. You're just seeing a massive expansion of the electorate. And it turns out that all of those new members of the electorate have very different ideas about the way that they want things to go. And yes, that looks argumentative because it is, but I think it's also more representative of what America actually is. But I suppose that the question is, is there enough of the commons in there or is is it really uh, fractured to the point that it's dangerous? I think that... That's an excellent question, which is why I'm stalling very slightly. (laughs) 
I think, yes, there is enough of the commons. And I think you can see that in pieces of America that are not about politics. When I travel across America and I go to cities, Baltimore, Cincinnati, Los Angeles, Seattle, anywhere I go, I feel very cognizant that I am still in the same country. I'm in a very different place. If you've ever been to South Beach in Miami and then you go to upstate New York, it's pretty amazing how Mm, different it can be. But they are very recognizably American. It's that through line that I think offers some sort of stability and offers a lot of hope to me. Um, I think that one of the challenges we have is that often Americans are seeing other Americans not in person, but they are seeing the projections of other Americans in media or from politicians who either want you, you to be afraid of these people or be more like these people. And I think the more I spend time with other actual Americans, the more hopeful I am because the number of Americans who have kind of the same mixed up political views that most people have. Most people Mm -hmm. are not, I am 100% Republican or 100% Democrat. Most people, um, the United States Studies Center just put out this great paper about opinions of Americans and a host of other folks on issues relating to relationships with Australia and other countries. And the number of answers that were, I just don't know, is so high. And I feel as if that's that's a very honest answer. Well, now I'm going to come back to that. You did offer an amazing example of the way things have changed. And I didn't know this, that your African-American grandfather, for instance, mm-hmm. fought in the Battle of the Bulge uh, on behalf of the United States, mm-hmm. came back, watched his white army colleagues given all sorts of government help, mm-hmm. and he was not. No. And uh, he won the Bronze Star uh, for bravery. He helped uh, not, he was not just at the Battle of the Bulge, but he also was part of a specific black unit that served at the Battle of Normandy during the D-Day invasion. But he saw none of the benefits that his white service colleagues saw from the end of the the Second World War. And he eventually gave his Bronze Star to his small children to play with because it meant nothing. And he felt as if it meant nothing. And I often think one... I think so often about he and my grandmother, um, my grandmother who desegregated the church that my uh, family later went to. They they struggled so much. And now I, you know, I host a podcast for the New York Times. It's very funny thinking back that like my grandfather, like helping storm the beaches and me, I host a podcast. <laughs> but um I think often about how that that was the experience for a large swath of the electorate. And I think also for a lot of people in especially with how politics worked in a lot of major cities in America, there was a real sense that politics was something that getting involved would only cause problems. You saw the the sort of machine politics in Chicago and New York mm-hmm. and elsewhere. And I think for people like my grandfather, the, what was politics to him? Politics meant nothing. There was no sort of participatory politics. And so I think that there's been a rise of political hobbyism in America what do you mean of people that? who... who talk about politics all the time, who are constantly thinking about it, but in the same way that um, people get really, really into, say, watching like the Great British Bake Off. (laughs) But, you know, they're thinking about like, oh, his technical was off. And you see people talking... Safe addictions. Yes, people talking about that, which one, that the point of politics is not politics. The point of politics is to get things done and to figure out how to operate as a citizenry. But that type of political hobbyism was unimaginable to someone like my grandfather. Well, in fact, you also told a story at this <laughs> webinar that I uh, heard that um, when you were growing up in Cincinnati, everybody worried about like the next, the building that was being built. That right. was local and we're going to come to localism in a moment. You know, who's doing that down the road? What the heck's happening there? Yeah. Now they want to talk to you about who's going to be Speaker of the co- of Congress. And yeah, and it's uh, it's very strange because that so that's is a, some, a complete change, isn't it's it? It's been a complete change and I think that that's something that has happened since 2016. I think that Trump's election was such a shock to the system for many people that they became engaged with the sort of day-to-day politics that typically only people who work for the Washington Post were engaged with. Now, there are people who are emailing me saying, like, why aren't you talking about this specific issue that's happening? Why aren't you talking about... um, Biden's chips deal to try and deal with. And I'm just like, I'm sorry, like, I would need to go back, read a lot more about this. And then I could come back to you. But I think that 
that type of engagement now, I think, but referencing kind of that type of localism, the challenge is that people don't have as much information about something that's happening down the street, and but the they are well the aware. Lo- has died. That's right. Mm. They're, they're well aware of what's taking place in Washington, D.C. So, and I live there. So it's so kind of funny. that prompts my thought about the midterms. If the Republicans do mm. gain control of the House, and it's very difficult yeah. to know, how will all this diversity and all these diverse people, and how will they be affected by that? Well, I think the challenge is that typically the party in power of the White House tends to lose control of Congress in the following midterm. That's generally how this works. I think the challenge will be, once again, that the Republicans will be the party of not that, not the party of we want this. The Republicans will be standing athwart something, to borrow a phrase from a conservative commentator, William F. Buckley, in America. And what will be interesting, though, is whether or not Republicans will then be given credit if, for instance, the economy improves not because of anything that they do, but just because the global economy is driven by shifts that largely are not the responsibility of the American Congress. For instance, right now, um, gas prices are starting to go down in America. Part of that is because there's been changes to the um, petroleum reserve that uh, the president has access to. But part of that is just how oil prices work. And so I think that what will be interesting is that the Republicans have promised that they are going to focus on a lot of issues that are not of deep importance, I think, to the vast number of Americans. They are focusing on investigations into things that Republicans are mad about. For instance, they want to have hearings with regard to COVID and uh, Dr. Anthony Fauci. They want to have more investigations into Hunter Biden, Joe Biden's son, Mm -hmm. for reasons that largely have to do with how Republicans see it and not what would happen to what, you know, everyday Americans would benefit from. But I also think that for many Americans, they will experience this as just being another example of how Congress doesn't work. Yeah, I mean, I wondered whether a lot of people were surprised, for instance, that Latinos started voting, mm-hmm. Amer- that African-Americans started voting mm-hmm. for, for Republicans because they thought that they were saying, no, right. stop, don't, for those very diversity yeah. you're describing. Does it surprise you? Not really. I think that we have a tendency to believe that people's um, ideology is as tied up in their es- ethnicity or perceptions of their ethnicity as they might be for some people. Um, for example, African Americans and many Latinos tend to be more socially conservative. That has not, for African Americans, led to them voting for Republicans for reasons that I think for many Americans would be fairly obvious mm-hmm. regarding the history of American conservative American conservatism with African Americans. But for which was Lat- often in the past, of course, right. Democrat. <laughs> right. <laughs> the South. Right, exactly. And so I think that there have been, for a lot of African Americans, there is an interest in some in conservatism, but not necessarily in voting for Republicans. And that's why I think that it's important. We don't see this as much as we should in both parties, but having party people who are voted for, who are representative of where they're from, not necessarily the party writ large. So for instance, there has been a lot of talk about the death of the so-called blue dog Democrat, which is kind of the moderate, slightly more conservative Democrat. But also there used to be such a thing as a liberal Republican, a Mm pro-choice Republican, and they don't exist anymore. And I think that that is a real challenge for our politics. And I think that For our Latinos, which let's keep in mind that using that term is defining a swath of Americans that can include folks who emigrated from Cuba who live in Florida, but also someone whose grandfather came from El Salvador and now lives in Texas. That's a massive group of people, all of whom will have very different political experiences. But also a lot of them tend to be generally more religious and more socially conservative. So it's not that surprising to me. I do think it's interesting, though, about uh, 12 years ago, there was this idea of the emerging democratic majority that eventually, as America became majority minority, that Democrats would thus get those votes from non-white voters and win forever. Mm. And that became a talisman for some Democrats, but also this fear for some Republicans. And it's interesting to me that 
as more non-white people vote for Republicans, you have not seen Republicans respond by talking more about changing immigration policy or talking about issues that might be important to different groups of people. Instead, you still see some of the same type of immigration restrictionism and the same types of kind of racialized rhetoric. Because they want that old America, one assumes. And so... It's been interesting because you are seeing a host of uh, Latinos who are not just voting for Republicans, but running for office as Republicans. But they are running alongside of people who are also Republicans who essentially are arguing that they are part of some effort to replace the white race. Mm -hmm. And it's it's a really complex relationship because those conservative values might be in some way similar, but how they're perceived based on who's holding them will be very different. Now, I'd like you to talk about some key um, contests. I wonder what you single out. I mean, all eyes are on Georgia, but also on Arizona. If you look at the Arizona story, I don't know how you can be calm about American democracy with what's happening there. So what are you focusing on? I think I'm particularly interested in, as you mentioned, uh, I think Arizona is particularly interesting. Georgia is as well. Pennsylvania. Um, mm-hmm. It's, it's fascinating state. to me how um, there's been a lot of focus on the Senate race between John Fennerman and Dr. Mehmet Oz. But at the gubernatorial area, um, the Democrat Josh Shapiro has a pretty big lead over Republican Doug Mastriano, who is not just another election denier. More than 370 election denialists are running for office across America for various positions. But also he is um, he's accepted money from avowed anti-Semitic or- organizations and has espoused a specific type of Christian nationalism. Josh Shapiro himself is Jewish. Mm-hmm. And it's been really interesting how that race has been not that close and um, it's it's interesting how Doug Mastriano has positioned himself in a very different way than mm. the Arizona gubernatorial candidate who is extraordinarily Trumpy. She's a former um, television news host. And I'm just it's interesting interesting how each of these races is very reflective of where they are and who is voting. Well, that's what's interesting about Georgia, because I heard today that they've had this extraordinary phenomenon. A million people have already voted in Georgia. It's very early voting, and that's unusual. Apparently, you can go up. It's not a postal vote. You go up and you vote. Now, what do you make of that? I think that that says something about how Georgia has become a massive turnout state. And I think Georgia also understands that it can be a political bellwether for the rest of the South. There are a couple different stories to tell about Georgia politically. One, Georgia has historically been a part of something what people call the New South, that after the Second World War in the early 1960s, there were a host of companies and corporations and people who moved to Georgia because Mm -hmm. of its relatively lax business regulations, and also to Atlanta, which... After the upheaval of the civil rights movement, let's keep in mind that Atlanta is where Martin Luther King preached Mm, and where mm. a host of other civil rights luminaries lived and worked, that it it has become, in some ways, an African-American mecca and has been since the 1970s, 1980s, 1990s. So there were a host of African-Americans who had moved north during the Great Migration in the 1920s and 1930s, fleeing racism, who in the 1990s moved to Georgia essentially for business mm. opportunities and made, you know, help make Atlanta one of the most powerful, largely African-American cities in the country. And what you saw, interestingly, in 2020 and 2021 is that those voters, African-American women specifically, helped Democrats have two uh Democratic senators from Georgia. Also, that is in part because Donald Trump essentially told Republicans to stay home because he was mad. Um, What you're seeing now is that continued political activation happening because I think so often the stories we tell about states in America are based, they they are based on a picture, but it's not a moving picture. It doesn't Mm -hmm. show what's Mm -hmm. happening over time. It doesn't show the economic shifts that are happening For instance, Florida is now a very red state. Texas is purple in all but actual Mm -hmm. voting, which Mm -hmm. is really interesting because I think that something about Texas that a lot of people don't know is that there are a lot of Democrats who live in Texas. They just are not, their votes are not often reflected in some part because of gerrymandering. But you're seeing some states shifting right and left, but that doesn't necessarily mean that their electorate feels one specific way. I always think about that there was a host of states 
in 2020 that went for Trump, but also those same voters voted to raise the minimum wage and voted to legalize recreational and medical marijuana. And I'm so interested because I think that to many Mm. people, I think of people's politics as being very, you are Republican, ergo you think this and this and this. But that's not how most people work. And I think that these midterms are an opportunity in which we're starting to see that, in which we're seeing people making decisions on ballot issues that are going to look totally different from how they vote for the Senate or the House. What a paradox. (laughs) I can't wait to find out what happens. Look, thank you very much. It's been terrific to have you join us. Thank you so much for having me. Jane Kirsten is host of um, a New York Times podcast, The Argument, and she's invited us to come back to her. So we may well do that uh, after the midterms. Um, But there'll be many reflections today, I have to say, on the nature of politics in the US. That story about the attack on Nancy Pelosi's husband is a very troubling one indeed. That man has now been charged with attempted murder. Uh, Nancy herself was uh, campaigning in Washington for the Democrats, and he was in their home in California when he was attacked um, with a hammer. It really is a terrible story. And we were trying to actually show that there's a range of uh, attitudes, but there we are. So no doubt uh, ABC News will cover that throughout the day. Well, up next, from a golden age of trade to all the the disruptions of recent times, and they're likely to go on, a view of how Australia can cope. International trade should be boring, should be taken as taken for granted as the water supply or trains running on time until something goes wrong. And our next guest will argue something is going wrong. The trade's interesting again for all the wrong reasons. That's a greatly underappreciated threat to Australia's national interest. And he's written that in a recent article because we are a medium-sized and advanced economy which relies heavily on trade. You might say, what about all those FTAs that we seem to be constantly negotiating? Well, Dr. Jeff Wilson believes that free trade, that vital post-World War II achievement, is actually being replaced by new systems based on politics and elements of trust rather than the market. Jeff Wilson is the Director of Research and Economics at the Australian Industry Group, and his thoughts are contained in his essay, Tough Times, Securing Australia's Trade in an Era of Upheaval. It's published in the latest edition of Australian Foreign Affairs. Jeff, welcome to Saturday Extra. Oh, thanks very much for having me, Geraldine. Why are we so vulnerable to these convulsions in the global trade system? Well, Australia is a very small and very trade-open economy, um, both just in terms of our export industries, agriculture resources, and a lot of uh, technology as well, but also in terms of the imports that we, we bring in. Um, and so Australia has been very used to having trade that just works. Um, what we've seen over the last few years with trade warfare, some of the interruptions that we had during the pandemic, and then also things we can see over the horizon with growing geopolitical conflict between China and the US and Russia, is that that take it for granted, we can sell it overseas, we can buy it overseas, it'll just happen, you know, really isn't something we can rely on in the future. And if you look back through history, trade wars have often, dare I say, preceded actual violent conflicts between countries. So, I mean, trade has been quite a booster for peace, hasn't it? Has that just, well, has that dropped out of people's um, thinking or memories? It's certainly the case as a big association. And then lots of people debate whether it's does peace create the trade or does trade create the peace? But there's no question that the two things go together. And, you know, during that last period of difficulty and conflagration in the Western world, you know, the interwar period between the First and Second World Wars, the 1930s was an era of trade war Mm. um, where a lot of countries said, our relationships aren't good enough. We're going to sever the trade ties that existed for a long time. And kind of without that thing connecting us, you know, there, it creates an economic incentive not to go to war because your economy will be ruined. Once you've broken that down, a lot of the guardrails are off. and Some of the geopolitical tensions we saw spiralled out of control. Indeed, you know, they did. Our fear today is that's happening again now in the 2020s. Yes. And I mean, then we had the World War II and all the devastation. And then we had the you know, thing, things like the Bretton Woods, you know, the World Bank created and the General Agreement on Tariff and Trade, which I remember studying and I thought it was pretty dull. But it, I mean, you remind us it's 
the precursor, really, wasn't it, to the World Trade Organisation, which has really been profoundly important in the lifestyles we have now. Oh, absolutely. It's it's enabled all of the things that we consider essential for like the modern economy, technology and society. And look, at its basis, the WTO is really just a, ba- a, a basic set of rules, what you can and can't do in terms of trade. Nearly every country in the world, just about almost 160 have signed up to it. And it, it's been around for almost 70 years. This gives us some confidence that if you're a business and you're importing something that goes into your product or you're exporting to a market, that there's going to be some routine and regular, you can continue to do that normally. It's a bit bit like a constitution, really, like you'd have in a country. Look, we have a lot of arguments over whether they're the right rules or anything, but it provides a foundation for confidence and trust. And as we've seen a lot of trade wars break out, which involves governments like the United States and China saying, we don't feel that we're bound by the constitutional rules anymore, um, it really raises a big risk element for us as to other things that we're used to doing for generations now going to be viable in the future. Well, in fact, you make the point that um, the the GATT was a pretty tight-knit club of Western countries mm. and friends with a shared commitment to open trade. Then Now, the WTO is now, post-Cold War, 164 members, incredible diversity which you'd think was a very good thing, but it well, you, I think your thesis is that it does change in uh, the whole situation in ways we may not have fully grasped. And in fact, at the moment, you couldn't say that that whole system is working very well, which has played into people like um, Donald Trump and others really um, sort of changing the rules. Mm. Well, we've certainly, as different countries around the world have changed and the power relativities have rebalanced, the old system where a group of rich Western countries set the rules and everyone took them or leave them has kind of broken down. Um, But there's a difference between there's a bit more disagreement over what the rules should be and this premise of whether there should be rules in the first place. Um, One of the big worries that we see is the WTO's, it's got a thing called its appellate body, but it's basically like the court system as we'd we'd understand in our our country. And there's a big argument of of whether the court functions properly as there is over every court ever. Um, But the United States has basically walked away from this and said, we're not going to appoint any more magistrates, and so it can't hear cases anymore. So we have a global trade umpire that doesn't have a functioning legal system to actually enforce those rules we've got. We've kind of fallen into an honour-based system since 2019. And of course, with the geopolitical conflict rising in the world, an honour-based system for complying with trade rules is is not going to survive very much longer. Okay, so let's look at Australia. Were we just not prepared, uh, would you say, for geopolitics to suddenly have have an impact on global trade? I mean, shouldn't we have been... um, certainly becoming a bit fitter given the complex and strained relations with China? Look, I think this is a problem lots of countries had, and it's almost a generational gap aspect to this as well. You know, we've had this system at a global level since the 1950s, and it's really been very reliable for us for since the end of the Cold War, for about 30 years. I think for most people in Australia at the moment, you know, not in our working lives have we ever had to contend with a global economy where some countries might just not trade with us because they don't like us or a trade war between two others like the US-China trade war affects us indirectly. So we don't really have any muscle memory for this. We've got to go back to our parents and our grandparents to really look at that. And and I think some of this is is really about... Um, something that's very far back in history, you can kind of put it out of mind until it comes back around. Well, in fact, the, the key question you pose then is how do we adapt to an era of politicised trade without sacrificing the openness on which Australia's wealth is based? Have you come to a conclusion? Well, Everett, that, that's the, the $64,000 question. But look, what we see a lot of people thinking about is this new idea of, of a, you could call it trusted trade. So it's a little different from free trade where you go, let's just get rid of all the barriers and you can trade with anyone that's just pure commercial market forces. But actually think a bit more about the relationship involved. Is my trade partner, do they maybe share my values? Do they have an interest in keeping the trade going? Do I have some confidence that if there is something goes wrong, we're going to work together to sort it out. You know, the opposite of what we've seen between Australia and China over the last two years. And so it's not saying don't trade at all, but it's saying when we do trade, you have to put a bit more priority on thinking about the relationship behind that to give you some certainty in this era of difficulty. 
So that does sound interesting, but surely it divides the world into zones, um, which is the reverse of this marvellous free trade that we've enjoyed for all these years. That is the downside. And we, in fact, do see those zones already emerging. Um, One you might hear about is this um, new idea called the Indo-Pacific Economic Framework, or IPEF is the acronym. And it's this American-led club of 14 countries in our region trying to build new trading arrangements um, for us. Um, There's some really interesting and important ideas in there. So things about digital economy, clean energy and labour standards. So some content we could get behind. But it's just a club of America and 14 of their friends. Um, And this really raises some questions about, for Australia, about which ones of these clubs do we want to be in? Does being in one prohibit you from or or make it more difficult to have relationships with others? So we kind of need to be really judicious in this era of fragmentation about which kinds of tents and clubs that we want to play in. What's our region doing by and large, would you say? The people who, like the Japans that signed that big new, well, indicating a big new treaty and Singapore and Vietnam? Lots of countries in the region have been trying to hedge their bets. And one strategy is just to join all the clubs. (laughs) This is quite natural for a lot of countries, particularly in Southeast Asia, that often feel, you know, politically and economically caught between the major powers. It's a very difficult decision for them to make. Um, But the fact is these things are happening as we've seen difficulties at the global level. So if the WTO globally doesn't work, well, what's plan B? Um, And also some of the pressure as we've seen, particularly with the uh, Russia's invasion of Ukraine, where a lot of countries are now under pressure to this question of how long can you sit on the fence? Can you keep trading with Russia as some of the atrocities that we're seeing just get worse and worse? It'll become hard to sit on the fence forever. Well, I mean, our mining and agricultural commodities, which definitely underpin a lot of our prosperity, um, they're very desired by a lot of countries. Where are they sitting Uh, They must be engaged in this in a big way, trying to discern the tea leaves, as it were. Absolutely. And lots of companies have had this experience during um, the Australian trade frictions with China over the last two years, where for lots of particularly those primary commodities, markets were shut off overnight. Um, Australia's advantage in our region is that we're comparatively small by the size of our trade partners. Um, Just looking at food, for example, Australia produces enough food to feed about 60 million people completely, which isn't even a single Indonesian province. Um, So, Even if one market gets cut off, if you've got some diversity or your eggs in lots of baskets, you can actually manage some of those risks. And we've certainly seen companies looking towards developing relationships with Indonesia and India, um, particularly in the last um, year or so, explicitly as a hedge for these kinds of scenarios. Does Australia have to resign itself, Jeff, really, to the fact that trade with China, given what you're saying, will never be quite what it used to be? Um, I mean, which is a, well, I think it's a slightly depressing thing to contemplate. Mm, One one could never say never, but the reality is we now have an overlay of politics in our trade relationships, which we don't before. That's not good, we would say from a, you know, a theoretical point of view, but it is a reality and Australia is too small a country in the world to be able to change some of those difficult global dynamics we're living with at the moment. Um, look, what we can do is make sure that we've got the resilience and our diversity to deal with some of those problems um, and looking to not all having all your eggs in a China basket sometimes, but some other commodities. It's often an America basket or a Japan basket as well. So this is not simply a, a China issue, but actually making sure that we've got that there is really the best thing we can do to make sure we're geared up for the kinds of things we're going to be facing. But what sort of advice do you give the members for the Australian Industry Group, advanced manufacturers and so on? They must be, you mm. must be saying to them, there's a new world coming. How do they equip themselves? Um. A lot of businesses in Australia kind of had a bit of a learning experience with this during the pandemic. And I I mean, we'd all remember the toilet paper wars of early 2020 as well. But, you know, that 
interrupted a lot of trade connections and made companies start thinking, okay, well, we can't just have a single supplier in a single country. And so everyone's looking to do this at the moment. It's going to take some time, but the hope is by having our eggs in a wider range of baskets, next time this happens, we'll already have that built in. We won't have to wait for something to run out or stop and go, oh, no, we have to go and find new partners. We can do that proactively ahead of the curve. And across all Australian businesses and sectors, we're definitely seeing those kind of strategies coming as as we're reopening after COVID now. Oh, well, interesting. I mean, we were, of course, really until World War II, we were quite a committed protectionist, as you, you point out yourself. Mm. Um, in fact, after, really until Whitlam came into power, we, we were quite, we were very involved in protectionism. So I just, why do you say it, it does pose us such a threat then? I mean, you're painting quite an optimistic picture then, but and yet you do say this is something we just haven't grasped. Well, it's a curve that we have to get ahead. But the other thing to remember is there's a lot of things we can do in Australia, but we are a small and specialised economy. Um, We can't make absolutely everything in a country of the size of 25 million people. And so the question for us is like, where can we find those things that we're really competitive at? We've got an advantage in a niche and we can have those industries. We're able to do that in the kind of free trade era after the 1970s um, without having to worry about the partner we were doing it with. And now we will, but it's very much a case of thinking, what have we got that's going to lead our economy into the kind of future society we want to have? And who are the partners that we can have confidence we can do that with over the long run? They're kind of the trade questions that we're going to have to answer now in a new way that we hadn't before. Just small questions. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) I'm sorry to say, yeah. Oh, the forecasting involved in that. Yes. Okay. Jeff Wilson, thank you very much indeed for joining us. Thanks very much. Jeff Wilson, the Director of Research and Economics at the AI Group, and his essay, Tough Times, Securing Australia's Trade in an Era of Upheaval, is published in the latest edition of Australian Foreign Affairs, where I also have an article too, on um, Penny Wong and uh, the challenges facing her. Well, up next, is the age of cheap tourism over? know that Australians are great travellers of all ages and wages, you might say. Well, a veteran UK travel writer and observer has warned the era of cheap overseas holidays just might be endangered. COVID as ever is part of the explanation, but not the only one. And of course, this does distill some pretty big dilemmas. Does cheap mass tourism pose an increasing threat to climate challenge destinations? Or does well-priced, thriving tourism actually enhance the conservation, for instance, of animal species and help local communities protect them from big coming changes in climate? It's not simple. And particularly at this time of the year in Australia, that basic question of cost looms large over many of us. So I'll be keen to hear why Chris Haslam, who's chronicled travel for years now for the Sunday Times in London, is sounding so concerned. Welcome to the program. Uh, thanks for having me. Why? What are you suggesting is likely to confront travellers? I think the biggest crisis facing travellers in the short term is going to be COP27, or that's certainly going to be the biggest challenge. I think COP27 is coming up next month, and I think there we're going to be reminded again of of the fact that we're tro- we've got to achieve what, uh, keep global temperatures to 1.5 degrees. That's the key. And I think at COP27, the news is going to be bad, that we have not made anywhere near enough effort to do that. I don't want to bang on too much about climate change, but the fact is that between now and 2050, we had to achieve 1.5 degrees. We have to get rid of between 24 and 27 gigatons, that's a billion tons of carbon. So far, all the world's promises add up to four gigatons. So we're well short. And I think discretionary spends such as travel are going to become increasingly targeted by by the public, by those concerned about climate change, but also if travel doesn't change by governments who will force legislation on in the form of travel taxes. Um, to make it only possible then for wealthy people to travel? Is that the, is that the upshot of it? Well, yes, Geraldine, that is the upshot of it. I mean, that's one way of looking at it. They would say 
um, and people I speak to in in the travel industry agree that um, in many cases travel has become too cheap. It has become too cheap to go on safari. You wouldn't say that if you saw the price of safaris, but they say it's become too cheap. It's become too cheap to see a tiger in the wild. It's become too cheap to hike in um, in Nepal or not Bhutan. Now, Bhutan's taken action, and that's interesting because Bhutan is now charging $250 a day just to be in the country. It may be the case that other nations follow. Rwanda has already done so with the gorilla permits, which are now a staggering $1,500 a day. That's to see a gorilla in the wild for about 40 minutes. Did you say a day um, or, or if you that, – that is per, per – I mean, I've been to see them. Is, are they charging that for a visit? Are they? One visit, one permit. So, you, I mean, you've been you've been there, so you know what it's like. You all turn up in the morning. You you're all split into different groups mm. based on your ability. Off you walk. You'll walk for somewhere between twenty minutes or three hours. But the moment you see that gorilla, the stopwatch starts. And after 30 or 40 minutes, you're out of there. That's fifteen hundred dollars. When Rwanda did that. Uh, I mean, it's, it's half the price in Uganda, by the way. But um, when when Rwanda did that, everyone said, this is despicable. This is making you know, the the opportunity to see a mountain gorilla in the world has been something only for the super rich. It's, a, it's an activity for the elite. It's terrible. It's wrong. And yet it's had a, a, a very, very strong conservation effect. You could say that the permit system alone has saved the mountain gorilla because well, well, of the funds it's raged. Well, oh, it, because of the funds it's raged. I was going to ask you, what's the problem with people visiting these places? You've heard of over-tourism. Let's look at, I know we're being a bit Africa-centric, but let's just look at uh, the Maasai Mara in Kenya, the Maasai Mara National Reserve in Kenya. Cheap to get to extraordinarily popular with people and suffering from unregulation and overpopulation. You could say the same for Yala National Park in, in Sri Lanka, which is one of the best places in the world to see leopards. Because it's cheap, people flood in. Because people flood in, the number of people working there, there's much more competition amongst people. Behaviour is shocking. Last time I was in Yala, I saw a guide vehicle racing to take its people to see a leopard. I saw it hit a mongoose and kill it. To have roadkill in a national park by a wildlife guide is staggering. So uh, too many people is bad for conservation. Too many people is, is bad for communities. It's bad. We, let's take something else. Let's move away from Africa and look at the um, short-term let problem. Now, loads of Australians travelling to Europe will use Airbnb. I'm sure they use mm. Airbnb in Australia as well. Well, it's causing havoc with rentals over here, actually. Too much well, Airbnb there's... is causing absolute havoc with uh, with rental availability and cost. Exactly the same in probably every popular city in the world. It's um, the, the, you know the Airbnb slogan is "Live like a local." In fact, you're living like loads of other tourists because the locals have been moved out to make room for Airbnb. This is another effect of over tourism. In fact, if you want to know, I, in I, I talk about the four horsemen of the tourism apocalypse, which are cheap flights, cruise ships, Airbnb, and Instagram. These are the four drivers of over-tourism. These are the things that have made tourism too cheap, and yet the world cannot sustain those levels of, of visitors, in, in not just in fragile sites, but in cities as well. It has rising prices should lower numbers. That's the idea. Is it elitist? On the one hand, yes, it is elitist. But on the other hand, if you really, really want to see a mountain gorilla in the wild, you'll save up and do it. Another example I can offer is Komodo Island. Mm. Up until last year, to go and see to go and see a, um, Komodo, a dragon. Komodo dragon on Komodo Island, it was a couple of dollars. You could just get out of bed and think, mm, I'll do that today. Now the price has gone up so much that if you want to see a Komodo, it hasn't gone up hugely for those of us on Western salaries, but it's gone up enough to make you think about doing it. And if you want to do it, you'll save up and you'll go and do it. That has had the effect of reducing numbers, reducing pressure on the national park, and yet still making the money for conservation. Well, that's the yeah, it's well, going to have to go. Well, let me put the other side of the story, because, I mean, I noticed the other day that in some of the um, 
low-profile places like Malawi, for instance, um, that tourism is really contributing. You know, it doesn't compete with the big, the Kenyas, the Tanzanias and so on and so forth. But it's people going off the beaten track, not terribly expensive, are rescue, they're rescuing the ecosystems of Malawi due to the traveller's money. So, I mean, this can work both ways, can't it? It can. It can work both ways. I mean, let's, let's be clear. Wildlife is an odd term because when you talk about what the so-called charismatic megafauna, otherwise the, the big, big five, five. The, the big species, are they, is it really wildlife? It, it, those species are allowed to exist purely because of tourism. Without tourism, there'd be no, there's, a, there's a saying in conservation in, and in, in wildlife travel, if it pays, it stays. They've said the same in India about tigers. If you can make money out of those, um, uh, those species, then they can stay and conservation efforts will be made. If you can't make money out of them, what you've got is big creatures occupying areas of land needed for grazing, needed for forestry, or needed for farming. Without tourism, those species will go. So. There's a lot of pressure at the moment, in, certainly in Europe, from certain parts, saying that, you know, that the mathematical answer to reducing greenhouse gases is simply to stop travelling. That's the scientific answer. Just stop flying. Then there'll be no emissions from aviation. It's a simplistic argument because of what you've just said about Mali. We, we as, as travellers, as, as people from the global north with the money to travel, we have made communities around the world utterly dependent on tourism for their livelihood. St. Lucia, for example, in the Caribbean, 82% of jobs there are, are in tourism. Without tourism, what would they do? They would lose their livelihoods, they would lose opportunity. So we have an obligation to carry on traveling, but we've also got an obligation to travel more sensitively, travel in, in a state of awareness. And one of the key things that needs to be done is to redefine what constitutes luxury. At the moment, I mean, one thing about luxury travel, or as they call it in the industry, HNWI travel, high net worth individual travel. <laughs> do they? Yeah, they do, sadly. But the, the, the truth about that is that what happens at the HNWI end of the market trickles down to the mass market. It's you can see it in I mean, one of the prime examples is lots of hotels you go to for, for a long time, you know, mid, mid market or even bottom end of the market hotels. There'll be a jacuzzi on the balcony, you know, mm. big deal. Years ago, 20 years ago, that was the height of luxury. I was hearing, you know, that people were putting out press releases because they had jacuzzis on the balcony. <laughs> it's now trickled down. It's the same with, you know, personal butlers. All these kind of things, they're, they're trite examples, but the top end of the market influences the bottom end of the market. Now, the top end of the market represents some of the most conspicuous consumption in the world. Private jets, helicopter transfers, oysters flown in from God knows where because people want oysters, Wagyu beef, possibly from Australia, flown into the Maldives. All the accoutrements of luxury are, are the most demonstrative indicators of, of personal privilege or success. So we aspire to them. You know, sitting on a Maldivian beach, sipping French champagne, eating an oyster that's been flown in, I don't know, from France as well, probably. It's, it, that is a definition of luxury. That has to change. We need to, the industry, we cannot wait for the public to ask for it because as long as there's a business class seat on sale, they'll buy it. So the industry has to take the initiative and say, you know what, that's an old-fashioned type of luxury, and that is now as immoral as drink driving, oh. because what you're doing is actively damaging the planet. Gosh, are you, are you going to have a job left then? You're talking well, yourself out of a job? Yeah, well, I might have to volunteer to go and look after mountain gorillas in, in Rwanda <laughs> or something. But it's, it really, this is what has to happen now. We, I said at the beginning that you know, we, we've got four gigatons of, of, of commitment of greenhouse gas, of carbon. We need to, between 24 and 27. Everybody's got to do their bit. And if the travel industry doesn't start changing itself, then it will have change forced upon it. There's a, there, sorry, I'm banging on here. Um, but 
the it's it's early in the morning in England and I've probably had too much coffee. <laughs> well, I just want to know one thing. How long have we got then before you think? I mean, there's a lot of people booking right now in Australia or planning or thinking whether they can get on a flight, these exceptionally expensive flights. Um, you know, how long do you think this process that you're describing realistically is going to take? What, you mean to redefine luxury? Yeah, or to... Uh, well, to, to make, you know, is cheap travel going to be sustainable, do you think? Is, are we really facing something in the next two years that will fundamentally change? Because that will really matter to Australians. I really wish, Geraldine, I could say, yes, something will change, but it won't. Um, as long as the, the political and the corporate will doesn't really exist to do it. Um, certainly the public have shown... No real indicator. I was reading a report from the Economist um, Intelligence Unit uh, this morning saying that 37% of Chinese people have now decided they don't want to fly anymore. 22% of Europeans have decided they don't want to fly anymore. I mean, it's a growing number of people who are realising the, the issue. Of, as I said earlier, just giving up flying, that's not the answer. We've got to learn how to fly smarter, you know, fly less, stay longer, put more money in the destination. I don't think, honestly, there's going to be significant changes in the next two years. But what I would say is that people will start to understand the transformative power of travel as opposed to the extractive nature of, of luxury travel as it was in the past. They'll realise it has to be something that contributes. And there is actually a really simple test. It's, it is so simple. Before you travel anywhere, before you, you, know, you get on the plane to do your grand tour of Europe and you're looking at all your accommodation options and your travel options, you just ask yourself, will my trip, even fractionally, will the holiday I'm about to take leave the destinations that I'm going to in a better or worse state than it was before I arrived? Companies tour operators, travel agencies who are committed to sustainability will be working on what's known as this triple P um, premise, which is planet, people and profit. It's called the triple bottom line. It means that these companies consider the benefits to society, community and the environment as important as the profits they put in the bank. So they put equal weight on all. You can find these, I mean, look at B Corp certified travel agencies. You've got one of the best companies in the world over there for sustainability. Look at what they do, look at their values, and then look at the other companies who you're thinking of booking with to come to Europe to go anywhere. And you can be certain that your dollar, your tourism dollar, is going to the benefit of the planet rather than the detriment. All right. All right, Chris, that's a, a good polemic there from you. <laughs> from you, Thank you very much indeed for joining us. Bye-bye. Bye. Chris, Chris Haslam, a travel writer for the Sunday Times, leaving you thinking, well, look, thank you to the Saturday Extra team and, and your company. Before we go, I urge you to keep listening because Andy Ford on The Music Show has a great interview with Giles Martin. He's the son of that fabulous uh, Beatles producer, George Martin. This is to mark the 1966 Beatles album Revolver, considered by many to be their greatest collection of songs. Giles has remastered the original mono mix and subtly remixed apparently the stereo and it's a revelation to hear some of the songs so i'll leave you have a good weekend here's a taster here's eleanor rigby remastered eleanor rigby picks up the rice in the church where a wedding has been lives in a dream waits at the window wearing the face that she keeps in a jar by the door is it for all the lonely people? Where do they all come from? And that's it for Extra with me, Geraldine Duke. Thank you for your company today. And I do hope you can join us again next week. Bye-bye for now. Writing the words of a sermon that no one will hear. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.